my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ed Slover. He is the author of Quest, Navigating the Journey Through Life and Business. He is a business consultant, certified transformation life coach, certified resilience practitioner, host of the Quest for Life podcast, and founder of Quest Consulting Service, LLC. We're going to get to know a little bit about uh, Dr. Slover today talk about his quest model quest is an acronym and we'll dig into what that means and um really i i just i've been looking forward to this I, i've been looking forward to talking about your background and and what you're most passionate about i i just had the privilege of uh, being interviewed by you on on your podcast so uh thank you very much for that but but thank you so much for for coming on and allowing me to have this conversation with you today thanks david thanks for having me well let's uh let's dig in to where it all began where uh where were you born and raised and and what was your early life like i'm a midwestern boy so i was born and uh, raised in southwest ohio um, I had a pretty, uh, pretty average childhood growing up. I, it was a family of five, very traditional, um, you know, upbringing in, in the sense that my dad was the primary breadwinner. My mom was, uh, was home every day after school for my sisters and I have two older sisters and, uh, everything about my upbringing was, was really just kind of nondescript. I mean, it, 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 there wasn't anything I would say special about it. It, it was a different time though, because, you know, we, we would, we'd get up in the summer times, we would do our chores and my mother would say, Hey, I don't want to see you till dinner. So we would go outside and play. We would you know go around the neighborhood. And then after dinner, we'd go out and play until the streetlights came on. So it's certainly a different time. Uh, and when, unfortunately, whenever I was, uh, whenever I was 13, my dad passed away. He was 39. He died of pancreatic cancer, which we learned at the time was, is rare in anybody under 70. And we had found out in May of 1987, he died in August. And as you might expect, that had a profound impact uh, on the lives of my mom, my sisters, and, and certainly myself. And then my teenage years, especially my late teenage years, I, I was just mad at everything. I was mad at the world. I was mad at God. I was just angry and ended up uh, you know, being estranged from one of my sisters. And in my early 20s, I ended up asking her, I'm like, why don't we have a relationship? And she she said something that ultimately was a light bulb moment for me. She's like, you're a jerk. And it was, and, and Dave, you know this, in life, we, we need people to help pull stuff out of our blind spots. And in that moment, my sister pulled that out of my blind spot. And it was absolutely not only a wake up call for me wanting to have a relationship with her, but it really shifted my mindset and my worldview of how I interacted and treated others. And it was the first time I think in my life, so early to mid twenties, where I stopped blaming everything that was external, you know, to me. Now, there's no, there's no doubt that there are things in life that happen to us. There's no doubt about those things, but a larger percentage, at least from my experience, a larger percentage are those things that are in many ways self-imposed. Yeah. And I was compromising the integrity of, of relationships at a younger age because of me rather than anything that they were doing. So 
Um, his, my dad's death had, uh, has impacted really from then until now in ways that are really hard to quantify because I would give my left arm to have a, a dinner with him, but also knowing that had he lived, I would be dramatically different. So, um, it was, it was nondescript up until that point, And then uh, everything shifted from there. Did you go right into college after high school? I, I did. I had a, I had an interesting, uh, interesting experience. So when I was a senior in high school, my last couple of quarters, I had already completed all of the, the academic requirements. I was an average high school student and I pretty much slept in, uh, in every class, especially seventh period. And we, I was literally a month away from graduation and didn't have any college plans. Uh, the, 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 College was aspirational, thinking, okay, I'll get to it at some point, but I'm, I need to get into the workforce. I'll need to pay for it myself. And I get a call over the loudspeaker, get a call from the guidance counselor to come see me, or rephrase, for me to come see her. And I, as I was waking up, because <laughs> I was asleep in, in class, as I was waking up, I made my way down and it turned out that there was a former founder of a, of a real estate company that oversaw a trust fund to help, quote, hardworking students. And I don't know if I would have fit into that, <laughs> um, but quote, hardworking working students get to school with a, a couple of qualifiers. So I had to live at home. I had to work uh, 30 hours a week. And um, if I did that, then my tuition and books, this was when we still had hard uh, books, uh, would, would be paid for. And it was a complete, was complete blessing, totally unexpected. And uh, it allowed me to go to, uh, to school uh, straight out of, uh, out of college. And I was able, I was on the five-year plan. I was able to, uh, to successfully navigate that. But it really wasn't until my third semester of college that I figured this, uh, this learning thing out. Uh, I originally was a, a secondary education major and that wasn't blowing my hair back. And then I just, I, I started getting curious about learning and ever since then. So for the better part of 30 years, ever since then, I've just got a voracious appetite for, for information and knowledge, even those things that conflict with my belief systems, knowing that I don't have to adopt them or advocate for them. But my mindset is really you know, just trying to get become a more well-rounded person and get a better understanding to the extent that I can understand uh, things that are separate from my own thoughts, ideas, and perspectives. When you were talking about losing your father and how that really impacted your life and the life of your mother and your siblings, you were 13 years old, so you had another five years of school. And I would imagine, you know, you, didn't just piss off your sister you probably <laughs> you know really irritated your teachers maybe other students who knows like i i know that attitude when i lost my brother i got really angry with the world as well and i i think that i pushed a lot of people to the periphery and um you know, I, I'm curious as to who maybe was it a teacher, a coach, or, you know, your mother that really became the main uh, role model for you that, that shaped your, your attitude and your work ethic when you went to college? Uh, so, let me talk, let me uh, talk about my mother real quick. Um, my mother in dealing with uh, the time period 
uh, once we found out my my dad was sick and he deteriorated very very quickly i mean in, in 3 months from the time we found out he was sick and in the year or two subsequent to his death the the word i would use to describe her is grace she, how there there's no guidebook to this thing called life there's no guidebook to parenting there's certainly no guidebook to dealing with a terminally ill spouse and when you have three uh, teenage kids there's no guidebook I mean, what does that look like what do you do with that and how she handled it was um she handled it with unimaginable grace and I couldn't have um, couldn't have just been more thankful for uh, for her willingness to sit with us and work through grief, despite whatever pain you know she was going through herself. She allowed us to work through that process, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Kubler Ross model of the five stages of grief. One of the one of the things that when you know people look at that model, they think it's a, a linear progression that you go from denial to acceptance, and then there are these pit stops along the way. And it really needs to be viewed rather than this linear progression as a continuum. Now, there was no denying that my dad was was gone, so I didn't have to live in that space anymore. But I was absolutely toggling back and forth between depression and anger for uh, for a period of time. And uh, after about a year and a half, my mom decided to have a life. And she I mean, she was married right out of high school. She was 18 years old um, and her family was her life up until my dad's passing. And so she ended up getting a getting a job that she really, really enjoyed. She started dating again. Um, and both of my sisters had moved out at the time. So I became a latchkey kid. And Dave, I don't know. I don't know why. Um, you know, this teenage boy never did anything to get in trouble. I had every opportunity to get involved in all sorts of messes. And I figured out a way to get homework done. I figured out a way to get to school the next day. I figured out how to how to iron clothing and to do laundry and to heat up hot pockets. And I, I you know, just figured it out. Um, and I, I think... Um, so early influence post, you know, my dad passing, my, my mother was uh, was instrumental um, in that. And she and I had some stuff to work through in, in my late teens and, and early 20s, because when she when when she sort of reintegrated into my life, she wanted to be my parent. And she was trying to parent me the same way she did whenever I was uh, younger. And we we. Had to had to have this out to say, look, um, I and I told her this. I'm like, you forfeited the right to be that type of parent. The relationship has to change. I couldn't believe I said this out loud. The relationship has to change for us to be able to move forward, and it has to be one of mutual respect. And this was right in the time of my, you know, my my sister and and others, and. I was just really fortunate to be in an environment where I had people that saw something in me that I wouldn't have otherwise uh, have seen and really serve as mentor figures, you know, but both in college and I was a tennis player. So within the tennis team, both players and, and coaches, and then into my, uh, the first part of my career. And, and, you have extensive education. You've got multiple <laughs> master's degrees, uh, your your doctorate. Was that just a continuous, uh, like, scholarly career that you just kept on taking classes? As it happened, there were very few breaks. Uh, I, so I finished my un undergraduate degree. Um, and ended up ended up getting a job working in cubicles with a necktie and uh, under you know fluorescent green lighting and it, it was it, every cliche about neckties cutting off circulation to the brain are true <laughs> and, and and I was just 
I did that for three months after I graduated. And how I described it is I copped out and went to grad school for the first time and uh, did that for, for 18 months and was completely fried with school. Uh, I resigned my, uh, my assistantship and I ended up going up to the, the owner of the health club I was working at and I asked him for a job. And it turns out uh, he was hiring for a membership salesperson. And to me, sell was a four-letter word. I didn't, didn't ever want to go there in my career. And uh, I, I accepted the job. And that started a 16-year career in the commercial health and fitness industry that was unbelievably rewarding. Um, and one of the things that the, the owner of the club wanted to do was get out of the day-to-day -day operations. And so five months after I started, I'm promoted to general manager of this club and I was 24 years old and had no earthly clue what it was to lead and manage effectively. So I picked up a, you know, my first master's uh, program and just really, I mean, became a, a, an immersed student in this because my, my team at the time ranged from uh, uh, teenagers who worked in our kids club, you know, taking care of the members, uh, children to our janitorial crew, which were retired husband and wife in their late sixties. I'm like, how is a 24 year old person going to relate to them? And right then it taught me that the, if you think about it, the most rewarding relationships that we have with people really come down to how well we relate to them and that being the the root of relationship and so um i really became immersed in that knowing that uh you know out into the future maybe i want to get into higher education and teach and figuring that i'd need a, a doctorate to do that so i ended up starting uh that process uh i don't uh i don't advocate for that <laughs> For most people, Dave, because the dissertation process is academic hazing. Um, there are hoops that you have to jump through. And the best you can do is make sure that you don't light those on fire uh, as you're going through the process. Um, and so I successfully defended that. Meanwhile, my career in the health and fitness industry is growing. I was a district manager for 11 24-hour fitness locations uh, in Arizona which was unbelievably rewarding, but um, my academic, you know, credentialing far outpaced even my years of experience uh, at that point. Uh, and then, so we fast forward um, prior to starting, you mentioned earlier, prior to starting my consulting business, I've, I've been at Grand Canyon University in Arizona for uh, eight years. Um, it's the largest Christian organization or university in the country. And it's uh, it's been an unbelievable experience getting to work with and among these young people. There truly is something about uh, the energy of young people that keeps you yourself young and energized. Which which master's degree came first, the psychology or the organizational management? Organizational management came first. Uh, the psychology came, um, the master's of psychology came after I started at, uh, at GCU. Um, as, a, as an employee, we, we get that benefit. And so I'm thinking, okay, so uh, th this might be fun. <laughs> going back to that sort of voracious appetite for learning, but uh, more, it, it served a more of a practical purpose. And that is uh, 10 years ago, um, my daughter's mother uh, was arrested for aggravated DUI on a Monday morning at 1130. My daughter at the time was four and a half years old and in the car. Now, my shared parenting uh, plan at the time was I had my daughter every other Thursday through Monday morning, which was conducive to working in a career that required you to work 50, 60 plus hours a week. And then I got wind of the arrest. I got wind that the uh, her my daughter's mother's blood alcohol level was 0.277. And 
my my plan changed. You know, we like to think that plans are from straight line A to B, but we know it it takes all sorts of different paths along the way. Even you might never get to B, at least what you thought was uh, was going to be B. And my plan became going about and getting my kid. And uh, so this is I'm giving you the snowflake version on the tip of the iceberg. Um, over the course of, uh, of a few years, I was able to get primary custody uh, of my daughter, uh, which has just been yet another blessing uh, in my life. Hopefully it's been a blessing in her life too, to be able to, to see her and watch her grow into a strong, confident young woman who absolutely uh, knows who she is and has a voice. Uh, it, it's it's just been um, it, it's been remarkable to see the circumstance under which that that happened that you know led to basically a break in that side of the family for my daughter and yet her being able to uh, grow through um, you know you know any residual adversity related to that into the person that uh, that she is today. It's really, it, it's unbelievable blessing. You have a, another daughter, correct? We're, we're a blend. My, my wife and I, um, so my, my, uh, I, my daughter is 14. My stepdaughter's 12. We're a blend. You know, I, I actually heard this recently that, um, you know, when people talk about blended families, there's this, uh, there's this assumption that it's like throwing fruit into a blender and it's it, it it blends nice and smooth and everything sort of meshes and marries really really well. Uh, the the reality is uh, blended families there there are some nails <laughs> that are that are in that you know blender. I mean it, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but for all intents and purposes, Dave, when my wife and I refer to our our kids, they're our kids. We don't refer to them as. Uh, step anything, um, except whenever we want to clarify, you know, that dynamic with others uh, and, you know, their sisters, both girls are my daughters or my wife, same thing. I, I want to dig in a little bit to your book. You, you have this extensive experience and you came up with this this quest model. At what point did you start developing that, and and when did you complete your book? Uh, I, I'm I'm curious about that because it was published last year, right in 2021. Yeah, last November, last November. So, David, as you and I've gotten to know one another, I'm you know that I'm transparent about being a person of deep faith. And that has really, um, that's really become much deeper and wider over the last 10 years. You know, I, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a Bible thumping Christian at all. In fact, I'm not strong with scripture. Uh, but my relationship to, to Jesus has never been stronger. And it's largely due to daily prayer and meditation and, and really just trying to you know, be open. The And up until about, uh, gosh, two or three years ago, I, I always apologized for that. I, I was never forthcoming with it. I, I, I don't believe we should, as Christians should be in, in anybody's faces about it. I mean, one of the most off-putting things to most people, especially non-believers, is when they express a curiosity about uh, Christianity or, or about God or uh, even other religions. And the person answering the question uses it as an opportunity to open up the fire hose on them. And, you know, it's fire and brimstone. It's, you know, you're a sinner and all of it. It's just like, oh my gosh, what about this? What about answering the question that's asked in the hope that you do a good enough job increasing curiosity so you get the next question? And so rather than it being this monologue of how bad you are and why you need this, what about creating a dialogue and an exchange and encouraging uh, you know, this reciprocal exchange? And so um, 
so I was at Grand Canyon. I was getting ready to start the semester last year. And um, at the end of August, I walk into the, to the living room with my wife and I'm like, I'm feeling, a, I'm feeling a tug. And that's how I describe God trying to get my attention. And it's very much like uh, a tap on the shoulder and this recognition, like, okay, something's coming. It's like, okay, we're going this way now. And it's like, well, how do I know, how do I know where I'm going? And it literally, Dave, it feels in the moment like that's not your problem. I got it. Now, you're going to be tasked with things. I'm going to entrust you with things. And you have to do them well in order to be able to be given more. And so I started Quest Consulting um, based on that tug, that pull. And a couple of the people that I spoke with uh, initially said that, you really need to write a book. And this will be not only personal philosophy, but even uh, e even business philosophy. And so I outlined the book in uh, September and I started writing. And as I described it to my wife, it felt like I was talking out of my fingers. I just, it just flowed. It's not an academic text um, because I don't want, because I, if it was, I would title it the cure for insomnia because that stuff is just <laughs> generally really, really dry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've done plenty of writing with that, but that wasn't inspiring to me, but it just flowed. And from the end of September, I had it outlined September 27th. I published it November 3rd, 83,000 words in 83 hours. And one of the things that just popped was the quest model. Now, how I structured the book, I, I, I structured it in two sections where the quest, the acronym quest means different things. But the model specifically related to business is, uh, as the acronym goes, quicker, understandable, executable, strategic and tactics or tactical. And so it really, the design of it is just to demystify, uh, you know, any business related um, uh, things that we have to go do. So we, we've got some serious decisions that we need to make. And, okay, so let's, let, let's go ahead and, and, and make those decisions. And, um, and then figure out a way to how can we what are those decisions that we can go implement now right so can that we can do quickly and then are they understandable are those things that we have to do understandable to us and then can we actually translate that understanding to other people because in many cases they're largely going to be the ones that actually have to execute it and then it is it in fact something that we can execute on because the implementation and execution are, I mean, that, that, that's the acid test for you know, the decisions that are made. And there's a ton of learning that comes out of uh, when we do it well, whenever it's not done well, and or even not done at all. Um, and then how does that fit within the bigger picture of our strategy? So what we're going to go do and then tactical or, or how we're going to end up doing it. Can you talk a little bit about well, about your book and and how that model really formulated. Uh, you were already doing consulting, right? I had just, so I founded Quest Consulting uh, almost a year ago. So uh, the first part of September of 2021. So the book, the only thing I did prior to that was uh, build out a website. So questconsultingservice.com and uh, the first iteration of that. And then I started writing the book. So I didn't even think about working with, with, you know, clients or, you know, business owners until the first part of this year. It last fall really for me was laying the foundation of, um, of why I was doing what I was doing. And that that whole that whole purpose driven as the older I've gotten for me every everything really comes down to um, does it align with my purpose my personal mission my reason for being and if it doesn't align with that then I just kind of have to move away from it uh, and so um, the the book 
was seemingly in perfect alignment with that. Um, and then that the next thing after that, you know, became the podcast. And I had never thought about doing a podcast before. And I had a student at the end of um, fall semester last year said, if you did a podcast, I'd listen every week. And I'm like, what an amazing compliment that is. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was be about. I, and I didn't know where I was going to do it. It started in my bedroom closet. I mean, I think that's how most podcasts start, you know, something, you know, humble beginnings. And, um, uh, and I, I really, I, I do believe that last fall, that really at five or six months of laying the foundation uh, matched up with that quest model. Um, figuring it, you know, so I was moving really, really quickly. It was at least understandable to me. Um, and I, I under, I, I really was, was visualizing what that big picture looked like and then how this was going to go. Um, and as we moved into 2022, uh, it, toward the tail end of January, actually then started working with, with, um, you know, small business owners. And that has been an unbelievably a positive experience. I've got to meet so many wonderful people. I mean, there, we we get jaded when we watch um, you know the the mainstream media and others because of all of the ugly in the world. And make no mistake, there is plenty of ugly in the world. There's way more good. There's way more good than there is ugly uh, if if we pay attention and take time to actually engage with other people. It's transformative. Now, are you still teaching at the university? I am. I am. And what what subjects do you teach? So I teach in our college of business. I primarily teach organizational behavior and management. Uh, I teach you know, a variety of leadership classes, business communication, uh, managing change, and uh, an introduction to marketing. So a bit of a Swiss army knife. <laughs> yeah. the, the managing change. I, I'm curious about that. So you're teaching, are you teaching graduate level students or? Primarily undergrads. I do teach in our MBA program. Uh, and the leadership class that I teach for in our MBA program does touch uh, on managing change some. Uh, if, if any of my faculty counterparts or GCU administrators would uh, would would listen to what I'm going to say next, they would be displeased, um, because managing change or change management, whatever nomen nomenclature you want to use, there are some brilliant models that can be applied to this, and. I, I see and understand the application of them. They provide a nice framework, a solid structure for helping people understand the progression of change. There is, however, one thing that um, can, can allow us to kind of put those models to the side to get a really, really good understanding of change. And that is if you, me, or anybody uh, changes anything about our life, we have to want it. Fundamentally, we have to want it. If we don't want it, there's going to be resistance. And in, in most cases, it doesn't matter what external motivators are thrown at us. If we don't want to, we're not going to. It doesn't, it, it, you know, I worked in the health and fitness industry. I don't know how many times I met with people that came in uh, to the health clubs and said, my doctor said I was going to die if I don't do something today. This is why I'm here. And those people lasted six weeks. It's because they, in that moment, they didn't want it more. So you get into pleasure pain. The pain associated with their present state had not yet superseded whatever their pleasure they're deriving from their present state. And only when, in, in most cases, only when that pain supersedes 
and becomes more of a, an oomph um, than whatever pleasure you're, we're deriving from present state, do we really then want to do it? And once we make the decision, once we have that want to, it's not that change is easy, but it's easier to, um, to then push through. And that's where I, I, I find the application of the model somewhat limiting because until a leader or manager figures out what's in it for the person that's going to be affected by the change, until they solve for that, all of these models, they really just don't, they don't make much of a difference. <clears throat> Are you familiar with the book Leading Change by John Cotter? Yes. I... I used some of that book when I was writing the article uh, for Fire Engineering Magazine about culture change mm -hmm. in the fire service. And I, I find that there is that, you know, one side of the coin is leading the change and then there's managing it. Mm. And I think it's pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Like for you to lead something, lead change, you have to really want it. You have to believe in it. And yeah. because if you are the leader of the organization that is, you know, changing its culture or, you know, sees a need for the change in that culture, if the leader doesn't believe in it and can't, show the rest of the organization why it's so important it's not gonna happen agreed agreed and that that's one of the that that's one of the biggest challenges for middle managers um you know simon sinek talks about how things break and they break in the middle and a lot of middle managers they they they're not taught how to be middle managers because from my experience and as a district manager for 24 hour fitness, I was by definition, a middle manager. And what I learned was the best middle managers have to be umbrellas because you're getting rained on from above. There's a lot of stress and pressure that you're feeling and you can't let the people that report directly to you underneath you within the organizational structure get soaked because they're the ones that actually are going to be implementing and executing um, the decisions that are being made and you're the conduit to that. And it's, it really is a fascinating psychology when you, or let's just make it personal. Whenever I disagreed with the decisions that were being made, it's like, wow, that is, that's a fascinating psychology. How do I get behind something that I fundamentally disagree with knowing that if they, my team doesn't get behind it, we're going to, we're going to fall down. It becomes this, it really becomes this, um, this weird space of, my gosh, am I in advocating something that I don't agree with? Am I being inauthentic? And we talk about authenticity and leadership and like, am I being inauthentic? And it, what it, what moments like that caused me to do was really take time and reflect and like, okay, uh, I want the company to win. And I'm not in those positions to make those decisions yet. And these people are really smart and really well-intended. So I can get behind that. And I can, and me being behind that allow, would allow me to demonstrate a level of authenticity, even if I disagree with the details. And that was a that was a way to um, to help me reconcile the internal conflict um, and hopefully be able then to transfer enthusiasm, be able to influence and inspire others. That's the leadership piece of it um, to you know, have them go, you know, go chase whatever we you know, were were tasked with chasing while managing the, 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 the moving parts associated with that, that put those people in the be best position uh, to win. So it really, it, it's, a, it's a, to your point, if, if we can't find a way 
to get behind it, it doesn't much matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all psychology, Dave. It, it really, it, it, leadership is fundamentally psychology. I mean, if we, if we think about um, leaders that are generally, or people that are in leadership positions that are generally less successful, is that one of the one of the things they do is they apply their filter, their worldview, how they do things the same way to each person rather than saying, no, no, it's not up to the individual employees or team members to flex their style to fit the leader. It's the opposite. It requires the leader to flex their style and meet their follower where they are. Because leadership doesn't exist without willing followership. Right. And if we want to assess the uh, the strength of anyone's leadership, all we have to do is look at how many willing followers that they have. And I'm not talking about people that simply check the box to keep that person off their back. I'm talking about people that want to do it because Dave asked me to do it. So it completely transcends the logo. It transcends the brand transcends the the company i mean let's face it you know we 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 make companies and organizations and businesses out to be this nebulous third party entity when in reality none of it exists without the the people comprising it and so it's just like okay well what's the recipe for gaining willing followers now to say it out loud is really simple, but to do it is extraordinarily difficult. It's like, okay, well, if if I can if I can get to know someone and invest time with them, and once they believe that I have their best interest in mind, they'll start to trust me. And that's take that takes time. Once they start to trust me, then they'll commit. Trust always precedes commitment. Be believing that someone has your best interest in mind precedes trust. And, and this goes in any, any, any relationship. And once they commit, they commit to us, they commit to the leader. And it's extraordinarily difficult to do because how many relationships have any of us been in where we had trust and one thing happened? and trust was eroded. It took all this time to build this, and in one moment, it, it can be gone. I can see where your your student was justified in encouraging you to be a podcast, <laughs> podcast host. Uh, I appreciate yeah. No, I, I, man, this is, do you teach online? I don't, I teach on ground. <laughs> I teach on ground. Um, I have taught online. It, it, teaching online, teaching is not the right word, unless it's a it's a synchronous type of scenario like you and I are doing. Um, asynchronous uh, instruction is really more facilitation rather than actual teaching, um, because you you know the students are either having to you know read and respond to written word or watch a video or whatever, so you you lose a lot of the interaction and. Uh, coming out of 2020, um, I, I know for me personally, and then the students I asked, there is absolutely uh, something so powerful about the cla in-person classroom experience. I mean, physical proximity, I mean, the number one predictor of love is physical proximity. And so we are social animals. I mean, that's long, you know, that's been long established. So um, being in the classroom and being able to engage and look people in the eye and um, genuinely care about them. And, you know, one of the things it, it, this just popped into my head, um, my wife is uh, is getting ready to interview for a promotion. And when that opportunity presented itself, she was a little bit nervous because she's on a well-established team that she leads I mean, this thing is working really, really well. And she's like, I don't know if I want to give that up. And I said something to her that I never said before in, in my life, Dave. And that was, well, if you get this opportunity, you get to love more people. And right then, right then, she's like, I'm going, I'm going for it. 
I think she interviews this week. So we'll see how that goes. But we we have such an opportunity in, in whether it's through podcasts, whether it's through, you know, you, you, I know you're you're a public speaker. You've gone around to you chat with a variety of different groups. I get to be in front of Generation Z, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of young people every year. Um, and it's just like, my gosh, what a blessing to be able to to be able to love them and have more people to be able to love. And there's exactly nothing wrong with any of that. Um, and so I'm, I'm at, at a place in life where uh, it's it's better than it's ever been. And I'm not talking about the measurable standards that society defines for us. I don't, I don't care much about that anymore. Um, it really is this sense of peace, being comfortable in your own skin. Um, and just like, you know what, I, I'm done with, I'm done with the chaos. I'm done with the drama. All I, all I want to do is be a better version of me so I can be a better version of those people that come into my world. Cause I don't know if I'm going to change the world, but I know I can be influential in the people that come into my world. And maybe that helps change theirs, uh, you know, for the better. There have been instances when I've been approached by people that I I was leading. You know, I I moved up through the ranks in the fire service, ultimately becoming a, a battalion chief, where I I managed six fire stations in a really busy part of town um and there's you know when you're working a 24-hour shift and you got you know six to 12 people living and sleeping and eating together and sometimes you know you, you don't know them you don't like them you know they might be a jerk but you got to work with them mm -hmm. you know when you get into a position of authority where you're managing all these different personalities, <clears throat> it can be difficult if a subordinate pushes back against you mm -hmm. and, and what you're <clears throat> and what you're directing them to do. So I had been approached by several uh, mid-level managers so it'd be company officers you know they're managing a, a fire station uh and you know the crew assigned there so they'd ask me how i managed to correct behaviors that i didn't like in a way that the the people receiving the feedback from me knew I was serious, but, you know, would do it and, and do it without feeling like they were being punished. Mm -hmm. And it took me a little while to be able to articulate it, but this is where uh, I, I ended up. Imagine your you have all of your children you know all all these people that are working for you are your tr children you want them to succeed you know it, when they mess up you want to hold them accountable so they don't make the same mistake again but you're doing it not as punishment you're you're holding them accountable so that they succeed because you care about them because you love them and right. whether you like their behavior or not, it doesn't matter. That's right. Because you love them. And you have to find a way to genuinely care about the people you're leading, even the ones that you don't like too much. <laughs> yeah. There there's a there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. You know, the as a parent, and you know, I happen to think lazy managers. Uh, and when I say lazy, I mean mindset. When they defer to managing others as glorified babysitting, I think that's just a lazy mindset. Yes. Um, but there are parallels. 
to you know parenting and you know leading and managing others. Uh, and you know, as a parent, you know this. As a parent, that you know, you're you're not raising kids; you're raising adults. Right. And the you know accountability uh, you're you're able to do that um, up to discipline and punishment. You're able you're able to do that with your kids if for no other reason they're financially dependent on you. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Once once that ends the relationship is no longer involuntary. I mean, we're born into an involuntary environment. And once that last piece is done, this is this is why relationships to me are an incredible compliment. I mean, when when my wife said yes, and she said, I do, what an amazing compliment she just paid me. We don't talk about it like that. What an amazing compliment it was for you and I to connect and agree to be on each other's podcast. I mean, it's a compliment. Um, what an amazing compliment for our kids whenever they don't have to have a relationship with us anymore, not technically, and yet they still do after they're no longer financially dependent on us. What an amazing compliment. And so in in business, our employees, that that's a voluntary relationship. They can leave whenever. Right. You can leave whenever um, you might have to fire someone. And I mean, that is uh, that, that that's no good. But when what I found effective when it comes to accountability is like, how do I earn the right to hold you accountable? Well, if you think about when, when people get into arguments and you can say, well, what are you arguing over? And it's like, well, we have differences of opinion. And I'm like, okay, so I internalize that. That makes sense to me. But what if, if you and I just have hypothetically were in an argument and we were debating, I mean, it wasn't personal attack, but we were literally legitimately debating the merit of the issue. And we just fundamentally disagreed, but the intensity of that increased. People would see a difference of opinion, but what if I believe what it is that I'm telling you? And what it is, what, what if you believe what it is you're telling me? Well, at, in that moment, we have competing truths. It's the truth as I see it. It's the truth as you see it. It's not differences of opinion. It's competing truths. And so when you look at, when you, when you look at it this way, it's like, well, now, how does that apply to accountability? It's like, okay employee X or team member Y, uh, I want you to walk me through how you intend to do this. I'm going to empower you to do this. I'm going to trust you to go do this. I want you to tell me what it is you're going to do and what the expected outcome is. I'm not going to assign it. I can because I, by virtue of positional authority, I can do that, but that doesn't transfer ownership to that person. So I want to transfer ownership and I want to hear it from them because if there is then a miss, then I can start digging in to understand the miss and then the conversation because, well, Dave, you told me and it's not my, you're not internalizing it as my opinion. I'm giving your truth back to you. And then if we've done the if we've if we've built the relationship well enough above and beyond personality differences above and beyond not liking you know certain behaviors or whatever where they we've spent enough time and they genuinely believe we have their best interest in mind then they understand why we're holding them accountable it's not to punish them it's to make them better it's to help prepare them for the next moment, the next relationship, the next promotion, that's the design. Uh, and I, I, I honestly think as leaders, we're not transparent enough with our intentions on a, a topic like that. It's like, this is why I'm doing it. This is my motivation and intent. Um, if certain parts of this don't work for you, that's okay. Tell me and you know, I'll, I'll flex to meet you where you are. And then we'll, we're going to go uh, we'll, you know, we'll do this thing together. I, I believe this is extremely valuable and it doesn't matter if you're in the fire service, the military and, uh, uh, corporate setting, like this is all applicable information. You know, it, it goes back to 
effective leadership, the emotional intelligence aspect, you you have to care about your people. Yeah. And and really strive to ensure their success. And to your point about uh the the piece of you have to be effective at communicating in order to build that trust in order to build the relationship you've got to get to know them and you you can't have a commitment from your team until they trust you and uh, i i just love how all the pieces came together in this conversation so thank you so much for for having this conversation with me and sharing so much of your wisdom and for those listening that want to purchase your book or enlist your services uh follow you on social media where where's the best place for people to connect with you you certainly can uh, check out my website, questconsultingservice.com. It, it, it's service singular. Um, the, the logo is quite, um, uh, quite unique. Um, it, it, you can see it's the, it, it's this Q in um, thing and, and not to get conspiratorial with QAnon or anything like that. It's just <laughs> the one I picked uh, uh, certainly on LinkedIn Um and I, I don't do a, I, I don't do a lot with with social media. It's mainly um, mainly LinkedIn, some Facebook, uh, but uh, emails at questconsultingservice.com. Uh, and it, you know if if you know you're a, a small business owner or you know that needs help scaling, or even if you just have an idea about you know starting a business and you know from business planning on through to larger organizations that um, really want to um, train the existing uh, generation uh, of of managers to be become better leaders, or even thinking more downstream. Uh, helping the next generation uh, of of people become more effective leaders, um, uh, you know, I th that's that that's the thing that blows my hair back. It absolutely blows my hair back. Is um, Dave, as you know, it yeah, you know, leader leadership. We can put words to it. Um, we can talk about influence and inspire and all of it, but um, when done well, it's it's just like, it's that it factor that like, we see it when we, when we, we know it's happening, we can see it, but then it's just like, well, what, what is that it? And it's like, you can touch it. It's like trying to drink coffee with a fork. I mean, you can, you, you can touch it, but it's just hard, hard to grab. And it starts first with a willingness and a want to care genuinely about other people because you value that yourself. And if you don't, if you are in a, a position of authority and you don't genuinely value, or you just, you know, that want and desire to care for other people, that doesn't mean you are, um, let me think how I want to say this. That doesn't necessarily mean you are cut out for being a quote leader. It's just, and, and that's okay. We all have, uh, we all have different roles to play. Um, but because when done well, it, it requires a lot of energy effort and really giving to the people that ultimately will willingly follow us. Dr. Slover, Ed, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Um, uh, I hope you have an amazing day. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website.
Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.